0: Kofkin Bond listeners, welcome back. Another week on the mic. Tony, how are you this week? I'm good. Really good. That's good to hear. Look, podcast 42. um, Last week with Caroline, it was... A great podcast. I hope you are keeping your morning routine. And I am. Can't you tell? I can. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so, uh, so. I uh, must admit, I slept in this morning. But um, so, so, did, so did I. So did I. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I did not a, have a great night's sleep. <laughs> I noticed <laughs> yeah. I opened the office this morning and I didn't see anyone in here, so I which is rare, a, isn't it? Yeah. Must have been a bit of a sleep in there. So, mm. look, we'll jump in it today. Um, a bit of an investment one, which we, we, we've discussed in a few when we're talking about asset allocation, but we actually wanna dive deep into this one. So we're talking about the the liquidity risks when it comes to portfolios with higher asset allocations to unlisted assets. Um, We don't put it in our portfolios. It's not in there, but we are gonna discuss, a lot of people are invested in portfolios that are similar to this. So we just want to make people, I guess, aware of the risks and, mm. and discuss them. We're not going to bag out anything, but we're just going to provide facts. and. Sorry, I'm not allowed yeah, to bag yeah, out sh- anything. <laughs> no, <are> you? <laughs> have you put I a disclaimer no. up here yeah. up front, have you? I'm
1: actually. I'm well, actually, this is going
0: to finish in two minutes yeah, if yeah, I can't yeah. bag out. I'm happy for you to go as hard as you want in this one um, because it is, a, it is a risk and it's something that people need to know. Um, yeah. um, but we, we're just going to present facts and we're going to talk about it in that regard. Yep. So when we're talking about, I guess, illiquid assets, it's we're most... most commonly talking about property infrastructure and private equities. Yes. So um, let's talk about, I guess, what is liquidity and why is it important?
1: Uh, I suppose there's, there's two components here. If we're talking about a self-managed superannuation fund uh, versus say a retail or an industry super fund, uh, there's, we're looking at two completely different things. So liquidity risk is when you don't have the ability to be able to sell an asset uh, to be able to provide you an income, uh, et cetera. So in a self-managed super fund, uh, as you know, we would only uh, help a client with a self-managed super fund if they own a property in it. Yeah. So we don't see the need for paying the extra fees on a self-managed super fund for the same investments if they don't own a property. And that can be their own com- a commercial property, it could be their own business premises, it could be a residential investment property, an apartment, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's all fine, but there's still liquidity risk there. And the liquidity risk can be closer to retirement. So let's say, for example, you have two members in the super fund and they have a property and that property takes up you know, 80% of their balance, but now they're retiring. And in retiring, uh, they need to now draw down an income. So their super fund might be worth a million dollars, have no debt on that property, and eight, 800,000 of that is the property. If they uh, start to draw an income, and they're drawing an income of $60,000 a year, they have to earn $60,000 a year uh, either from rent, so an $800,000 property, you're probably gonna be earning about 30,000, so they have to make up the other 30,000 from the liquid assets. Now, if there's only $200,000 in liquid assets, and those liquid assets don't earn 13%, then they are starting to draw into capital. So eventually, sometime down the track, see, with a with a hard asset like that, you can't sell the bathroom. You actually have to sell the entire asset. So from a taxation perspective, you know they're retired, they're over the age of sixty. They sell, They bought that property for three hundred thousand. They sold it for eight hundred thousand, some twelve years later or so. Based on that, there's no capital gains. They've got they've created liquidity, but they don't have they don't have the opportunity to actually um, sell just part of that asset. So, if the whole thing was liquid, and they did they only earned fifty thousand in earnings for the year, they can easily sell part of that part of that <coughs> asset. So, what we actually have is that situation where. Them not having liquidity, they are either going to draw down from one side um, or have to sell that property. That's in a self-managed super fund so doing, that can you're be managed. Portfolio liquidity, yeah, portfolio liquidity, so that can be managed. So they've got a hard asset taking up a good chunk of that portfolio. In your own retail or personal or industry super fund, you don't have that privilege. Okay, so uh, the first thing is, as a, as a disclaimer, is that we won't use any uh, non-liquid assets or hard assets in our personal model portfolios for our clients. We believe that all of our portfolio should have liquidity. Uh, so in other words, we're not going to uh, have to suffer liquidity risk, which comes down to sequencing risk, especially when somebody's nearing retirement. So. Uh, But in saying that, though, that wasn't the case in the past. In the past, we have had uh, situations, and this was prior to the GFC, where we did actually hold uh, property syndicates and things like that in there. um, And with those property syndicates we had an issue of when the GFC hit, those syndicates all of a sudden couldn't be redeemed. So based on that, we have had those issues in the past. um, And through that, and through what happened back in the GFC, we made a steadfast rule in here 10 years ago There'll be no illiquid assets in our portfolios ever again well when
0: mark i guess when market stress comes high and liquidity is dry
1: well yeah and we also and we also don't have debt in our yeah. portfolios either so things like for example mezzanine debt or um or just mortgages uh which also got hammered massively um, after the gfc with some of those mortgage trusts etc and we're not talking just the small ones like your lms we're talking the yeah, large ones as well uh where it was a case of where you used to have seven-day redemptions, uh, paying good income, all of a sudden they were frozen, yeah. Because they couldn't, they there's no new money going in, and they couldn't foreclose on those mortgages. So,
0: so when we look at some of these portfolios, yeah, um, I, I guess some of them are even starting to do it now, where they're locking in their property funds. Um, yeah, if okay. you're putting your allocation to property and you're wanting to move that out into Australian equities in these some of these retail and industry funds, that um, you can't. Correct. Yeah, they've locked you in already.
1: Correct. So what's happened is if you take, for example, Australian Super's balanced option, which is their default option, yep. uh, which uh, you know, I think they've got 2.2 million Australians are in um, are in that, well, are in Australian Super, and of that, I think 80% of people just sit in the default option anyway. Yep. Their property option uh, has now been locked out. So if you've gone and you've got your portfolio and you've put a 30% allocation into property, in the event of you wanting to roll that over, that fund over, they will not allow you to redeem uh, your property component anymore. And the reason being is because they're in illiquid property. So if we just break down the difference, and illiquid property is when you have hard assets. So you go and buy that building across the road for $30 million, you go and buy that shopping center, you know, for $1.5 billion, as an example, and then Lisa currently suffering this in their portfolio at the moment as well. So what you actually have is you have these hard assets, you've got billions of dollars worth of redemption requests, and they're refusing to sell, so you're locked in. Where the problem really lies in this is not when you're necessarily doing a rollover, is if the market goes into a tailspin and a panic. So if you have 30% of your portfolio in illiquid assets, and those illiquid assets can be property, uh, so not a, pro- listed property so a listed property trust. So listed property trust, or REIT as we call them, retail investment, uh, retail, sorry, real estate investment trusts, uh, they own shares in companies listed on the stock exchange to make their money off property. Yep. So that, that's like owning Goodman shares and things like that, So um, or lease shares, et cetera. So that's a bit different. So that's 100% liquid. doesn't mean there's no risk involved in it, but there's 100% liquid. An illiquid portfolio is when they actually have to, they've got all these redemption requests and they have to meet those redemption requests and they can't uh, because they can't sell those properties. The problem that occurs is when we have a market meltdown. So if I'm going to use the GFC as the most recent horrible example, uh, one of the worst examples I've witnessed in my nearly 28 years in this industry, um, during the GFC, I'm going to use the uh, real case, uh, the MTAA, the Motor Traders Association's uh, superannuation fund. The MTAA was the best performing balanced fund uh, leading into the GFC. So a balanced fund, as you know, we believe, should have 50% allocation defensive, 50% allocation to growth. MTAA had roughly about 75% allocation to growth assets. So absolutely it's gonna outperform balanced funds at a 50% Well, it should. It's taking a lot higher risk, it should outperform. The problem that occurred with the MTAA is it had around about 35 to 40% in hard assets. Uh, we'll talk about how do you revalue these hard assets later on. but we had 40% exposure. The GFC hit, people panicked. People wanted to redeem their funds and roll over. The only part so if you had a redemption request, you can't go and sell part of that property to meet that redemption request. So what then happened with the MTAA is they had to do the redemption request out of their liquid assets, their shares, cash, which were very limited.
0: So buy high and they were selling low.
1: At the, exactly right. At the worst possible time, the only way they could meet these liquidity uh, to roll over these funds was from their liquid assets. So this having the liquid assets dropped because the market just dropped 50%. Their liquid assets exposure, which might have been of the fund actually just dropped. So all of a sudden they've now got 60% of their fund in illiquid assets, they've got redemption requests having to be made out of the liquid assets, selling at the worst possible time, selling at the time where we're running in the streets saying buy, 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 and, and people are panicking and selling. All of a sudden the MTAA had to close for redemptions. That also included paying pensions. They had to be paid by law, so they had to be met, but basically it was, it was on the minimum. So the MTAA uh, superannuation fund got into massive strife because it went from being the best performing fund to being the worst performing fund for the next five years because of its illiquid assets.
0: So I guess with that, you did lead on. Let's talk about, I guess, how the unlisted assets can be misleading. So this comes back to valuations and, yeah. and when and how they're evaluated, which is, which is a funny one. But they can be misleading the returns in what they provide.
1: Yeah, and I think it, what it comes out, and the, you know, and everything I'm quoting is readily available online, so it's, it's not Tony just having um, a bag-out session here. It's just that it's it's not widely reported, and, and your standard person doesn't know uh, these things. But if we talk about um, a listed asset versus an unlisted asset. A listed asset, you know, whilst the stock market is open on any given day, exactly what you're worth, and given moment of any given day, exactly what you're worth. An unlisted asset is where are the rules on how often this this property has to get uh, revalued and put that into its unit price. And what happens if the uh, trustees don't like the valuation? Can they just go and get another valuation which is a bit healthier? The answer is yes. Now, another question too, when it comes to private equity and venture capital, how many clients walk in the room here, Jamie, who uh, they might be sophisticated investors from a legal perspective and how much assets they have, how many of them would you regard as sophisticated investors where they have the knowledge of a hedge fund manager or, or a fund manager, understand how derivatives work, short selling, uh, private equity investments and venture capital? Not many. I would suggest none. No. <laughs> and, if, and if anyone, if I've just offended any client, please write me an email and I will apologise. But I would suggest very few to none. Yeah. Okay. What that then means is that when they're investing, the average Australian is investing in these industry funds and especially Host Plus in this scenario. Okay, When they're actually investing in these funds, they, Host Plus have a large exposure of their funds in private equity and venture capital. So on that basis is that the average investor is investing in things that they would not dream of investing in under any circumstance uh, if they were to go out and do it themselves. Yet their funds have been doing so on venture capital the statistics out of the US are 93% of venture capital uh, investments fail.
0: Well it's interesting, I had a meeting just before Christmas um, and I was giving a reference for a company that we work with, um, a piece of technology that we use. And these venture capitalists were looking to put in a fair sum of money. And I said, I, I asked that question, you know, I guess, who's your biggest backer? Um, and one of their biggest, their biggest backer was an industry super fund out of Australia, mm. um, putting their money into a venture capitalist in the US.
1: Yeah, that's right. So when you consider a whole chunk of this actually fails, um, you know, and that failure doesn't mean losing all their money, uh, but, you know, so you're backing someone, and is there a vested interest in doing that? how will they work? And we we know that, you know, I saw one valuation out there, and this doesn't necessarily happen in Australia, but you know, how do do you, the guys that sell the mattresses um, over in the US, made a $65 million loss and they want to float their company at a billion dollars. How do you value something that is just year after year after year after year made losses? Oh, well, we're valued at, we're billionaires. I mean, those beyond me. But, that, but that's the world of private equity and venture capital. Now, anyone who goes and invests in that is, is I'll call them a novice <laughs> so, or not that knowledgeable if they think buying shares in that company is going to be the star performer. Um, and a classic example of that was WeWorks. Uh, everyone, you know, oh, WeWorks is going look at it and look how wonderful they are. It's broke. They're not making any money. They were never making any money. But when you have the CEO going and buying a private jet, when they're making no money, it's just beyond me. But that's what happens in venture capital and private equity. So when you have uh, the so-called Host Plus Balance Fund currently got 99% of their investments in growth assets. That includes property, hard property, which they regard as a defensive asset. I don't understand how anyone can actually call a property a defensive asset. It is a growth asset. It goes up and down in value, and if you've got a substantial amount of debt leveraged in there as well, how can you actually call this? And one example I will give was when, um, this is in the AFR, happy for anyone if they want me to send the article. The, a lawsuit by the head of property for Australian Super, was dismissed, and he's actually now suing them for unfair dismissal from his $500,000-a-year job. Not a bad income. Um, And the reason being is because he was told, this is according to the Australian Financial Review, he was told to do a very large, multi-multi-million dollars of allocation into Industry Funds Australia, into a private company. Um, The private company was a developer, and for him to basically fund a huge amount of money uh, into this private developer. This private developer was owned by Gary Weaven, who was the chairman of Industry Fund Services, uh, being the industry super funds. And and he was told he saw this, and you had directors uh, that were sitting on both boards. He said, I can't do this, it's an absolute conflict of interest. Where the valuations? How can we say this, how can we say this, huge amount of money i'm talking maybe 40 with several zeros after it uh, how can i justify this and how do i value this ian silk who is the chairperson of industry funds australia said to him just make the investment he said no i can't do it and his job was dismissed how is that not an absolute massive conflict of interest that would be like me saying to my clients 15% Fifteen percent of your allocation of your investment is going to buy shares in my company. I, I don't think our compliance team would like that at all. So it's I uh, yeah. I don't think that's Jamie. I won't I even let you buy shares yeah. at the moment. So it's uh, so when we talk about I guess yeah.
0: those unlisted assets and valuing, there can also be like lags on those valuations. Absolutely. If there's, if there's bad times that have happened, it, it may take twelve months, two years, three years down the track that to actually
1: catch up yeah well the the best example was a um a large example that i can give you was a property syndicate here in australia which was originally run by saa sait's mcmahon became became orchard and i think it's called arena now but they had a billion dollar property syndicate which just uh invested in commercial properties It had an equity-to-debt ratio of about 40%. uh, So 40% debt, 60% equity. It was meet Nords KPIs, no issues with debt funding. In fact, you had banks lining up trying to offer them money prior to the GFC. Can we give you more money to go out and make more acquisitions? It was a fund where you could have a one-month redemption, uh, so it was put in. The GFC hit. All the banks made them go back and revalue their properties. In going back and revaluing their properties, um, the GFC has now occurred, nobody is buying, the valuers came in, and those properties were all devalued by around about 15% on average. So, if you consider that billion dollars is now worth $850 million, so it's paying a good income, was paying about 10% rental yields and income. That's now valued at $850 million, the debt to equity ratio didn't change. All of a sudden, they were in breach of their lending uh, conventions, and on that basis, they were then forced to sell properties. That portfolio had to be sold down to about $100 million. Now that was all those funds had to be used to repay debt. So when the when a property was sold at a fire sale, they might have bought that property for hundred million. dollars they're now selling it for seventy-five million dollars, and the debt on that might have been forty million. So of that seventy-five million, it's gone straight to pay off debt. And they had to keep paying down it. Centro Properties was uh, was huge, well, one of the hugest Australian company. Both all Australian shopping centres in the U.S. went bankrupt. So this is a problem. So when it comes to these valuations, a industry super fund uh, can turn around and say don't value the properties. We're not going to value them until we have to under APRA regulations. Yeah. And by doing that, the valuations of those properties is laid. So the unit price still looks okay. But then twelve months after the event, all of a sudden the unit price drops off dramatically. Yeah, That's a concern. Um, so so all I'm all I'm saying is that I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't invest in Australian Super or Host Plus or anywhere. You invest wherever you like. That's your choice. But you have to understand the underlying investments and risks that you're taking with the investments. And that's what I'm the big, the big one on. If you, If we're going to use an adage of compare the pair well then compare the underlying assets. Don't pick and choose returns of several funds and ignore all the other ones. Don't say, look at how our balance fund has outperformed every other balance fund if it has 99% in growth assets, when it should only have 50%. So compare the pair, and what I'm saying is, as long as you understand the risk you're taking, and one of the biggest concerns I have for this is not the 30-year-old, Who's in an industry super fund or any superannuation fund and understand the investments, a 30-year-old might have $80,000 in their super fund. That's not my concern. My concern is for the person approaching retirement. If the person approaching retirement has $500,000 and and that's it, they're living off that in a part-age pension for the rest of their life, and that $500,000, we have a major event, and all markets are high at the moment and we have a major event and liquidity dries up. There's no more lending out there. If we have that major event like the GFC or even half of what the GFC is, and all of a sudden 25 to 30% of their assets get wiped off overnight, their retirements has been wiped off because they have no chance at all of ever re, of ever remaking that two hundred thousand dollar loss that they've just made because they have to draw an income now. Yep. Not like the thirty year old who every year still gets ten thousand dollars a year put into his super. Fund. Plus plus growth, plus growth on top of that as well. So, so the as you get closer to retirement understanding the risks that you're taking is so vitally important because it's not as if our portfolio wouldn't get hit as well. But if our balance fund has 50% in growth assets and 50% in defensive assets, and that 50% in growth assets gets hit by 50%, the portfolio is down by 25%. If this balance fund over here has 99% in growth assets and gets hit by 50%, you're down by 50%. The difference is, is we have all liquidity. We have the ability to be able to use the cash and that liquidity to start buying those assets cheaper. You'll never pick, if we ever were to ever pick that bottom of the market precisely, it's pure luck. Yep. Yeah, we we have a range where it might be 10% too early or 10% too late, but getting in down at that bottom dip is what's important. The only way you can do that is you have cash, and the only way you have cash is if you have liquidity. So that's that's where I sit. I know I'm quite passionate about it, but all I do is for every Australian out there who is part of this compulsory superannuation system, which is the greatest savings investment vehicle anywhere in the world, is understand the underlying risks that you're taking with your investment.
0: Yeah, and I guess you're never gonna feel the pinch of your liquid assets until there is market stress.
1: And when there is that market stress, if you're in retirement and you're drawing an income from that, that hurts, it hurts massively.
0: Tony, thank you for today. Sorry, Um, I didn't let you talk much. No, that's that's (laughs) all right on that one. Between you coughing, (coughs) you coughing, (coughs) etc. But look, we actually have some great interviews coming up in the next few weeks. We do. So there'll be some clients and some people we work with. So I am really looking forward to that.
1: Yeah, some wonderful interviews coming up. So it'll it'll be it'll be very interesting. Yes,
0: very. So Tony,
1: thank you, and let's talk next week. Thank you.